Welcome to the Minimum Viable Podcast, a project of the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. Our mission is to inspire, connect, and empower people in order to promote a culture of innovation in the U.S. national security community. You can learn more about DEF and get involved at DEF.org. That's D-E-F dot O-R-G. We look forward to your ideas and are excited to connect you with other doers working on hard problems. All right, and good evening. Hello, everyone, and, and thanks for joining us tonight uh, for this installment of the Defense Entrepreneur Forum's Tech Leadership Series. The DEF's Tech Leader Series exists to empower defense leaders and change agents with the insights they need to digitally transform national security. Tonight, we're going to hear from Colonel Matt Benigni, who's a Chief Data Scientist and DevOps Practitioner at USOCOM. There, he leads teams that bring these capabilities and disruptive technologies to the tactical edge. Before this role, Colonel Benigni earned his PhD from Carnegie Mellon, taught at the United States Military Academy, and served as an armor officer. The goal of this session is moving past the hype around AI and data science at the tactical edge to inform leaders pursuing their own data-driven journeys. A final housekeeping note, and with that, uh, Colonel Bredigny, would you mind telling us a bit about your journey into your current role? All right, well, thanks, Jay, and thanks, everyone, for, for tuning in. Um, so, so Jay kind of hit the high points, but I, I think a couple assignments I'll mention on, on my path to here. Uh, so undergrad, I started with an, an operations research degree, uh, so a, a technical background, and, and then commissioned as an armor officer. In OIF-2, I was a, a chief of plans, so a brigade chief of plans. Um, so that running a, uh, a planning staff and kind of combining a combined arms planning staff, I think has shaped the way I look at data science. I think of it just like folding in another technical skill, the same way you do uh, fires or uh, signal, et cetera. Um, and then my, my company command in OIF2 is in, in Eastern Baghdad, where uh, they were fielding the explosively formed penetrator. Upon redeployment, I, I took an offer to go teach at West Point and spent two years at the Colorado School of Mines getting an applied statistics degree. And that's where I, I'd say I like caught the bug. Started trying to solve that IED pattern problem um, and was exposed to some different branches of statistics. And, and uh, I was kind of all done from there. I've been uh, mucking around inside my computer, trying to write code for useful purposes ever since. After leaving West Point, got the opportunity to go to Carnegie Mellon. And upon graduating from there, arrived as, as the first data scientist uh, in my command, and, and they wanted me to focus on Intel. So note the lack of soft or Intel experience in, in what I was just talking about. So I kind of parachuted into this command uh, with a strong tech foundation for solving data problems, but, but really didn't understand the data problems. So the first year I was in this command, I think it was pretty fun. You know, I just focused on how do you, how do you help analyst pain points? Um, I was lucky enough that leadership supported just deploying me um, to places where analysts needed help. And the organizational culture was such that they'd let a colonel work for an E5. Uh, and, and I could kind of sit alongside uh, analysts and and as I helped them kind of, you know, easily deal with data wrangling problems, um, I kind of slowly got to understand the, the actual problems that, that they wanted to solve. Um, so we got a, a few other 
um, you know, technologists and data scientists to, to rotate out to those positions as well. And, and, and the effort really was wildly successful. So, you know, if you, if you put talent next to the problem in, in a focused environment, it, it's, it's pretty easy to start getting quick wins. Um, so, so we ended up winning uh, SOCOM's Lamberson Award for innovation and supportive operations uh, with our tactical data exploitation team construct. And then for the past two years, uh, my job's been to see how, how we can replicate that and how we can start um, moving from this kind of episodic, almost pickup basketball-like um, entrepreneurial effort into an enterprise infrastructure that enables this repeatedly. So kind of before we go into the rest of the program, I, I wanna pause and emphasize a couple of things there. Oftentimes uh, when I'm part of discussions like this, there's, and I'm guilty of it myself, there's this tendency to try and overgeneralize things. So, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share some lessons learned that are from, uh, a data scientist who's been very tactically focused and exclusively looked at problems that can be answered in weeks uh, or, or months. Um, and, and anything that's a longer burn than that, I've kind of said, well, that, that's what some of, the, some of the more centralized efforts in DOD that are partnered with academia and, and, and folks that are qualified to tackle that scale of problem so I think there may be some lessons learned that are broadly generalizable, and I'll, I'll you know, try and highlight my opinions there and, and state them clearly as opinions. Uh, and I'll, I'll try and also uh, bracket the things I say as well as, as to not uh, be misapplied. So with that, Jay, I think you wanted us to kind of walk through the, the overview real quick. Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, I'm going to beat an oil drilling metaphor into the ground for about 10 minutes. Uh, but we've started to um, use this metaphor to help our operational leaders think about um, how solving these problems really has helped our command start to digitally transform, how to, how to grow our data literacy. So I, I'll start with, at our core philosophy here, we start with uh, the, the little icon there, humans, the little user icon, are, are pretty good at interpreting meaning. Uh, computers are great at repetitive tasks, so processing, and then complex pattern recognition. Both are, are provably horrible at the other's strengths. So kind of at our foundation, we think the role of the data scientist is to maximize the amount of time our analysts are spending interpreting patterns that matter and get them out of the business of doing what they're poor at and hate to do, which is wrestle with data so they can get to something they can start assigning meaning to. These two articles referenced here um, the first one, data is the new oil. So the, the, the basic gist of this argument is uh, companies that learn how to extract information from data, there is going to be huge rewards. But the exercise of extracting it is, is, is the task at hand. And the article referenced below, uh, many of the folks on the call have probably seen the AI 
hierarchy of needs pyramid. Uh, but this is the article that's lifted from and what uh, Monica Rogatti claims here is that in industry, uh, many companies went out and hired high-end data scientists, bought large servers, and initially were underwhelmed by results that oftentimes the, the barrier is um, more around the organization's data literacy or if the data infrastructure isn't there yet. Um, so, so we'll kind of dig into what, what that means. But if we, so if we define data literacy as the ability to read, understand, create, and communicate data as information, really that is what as an organization within a special operations command, we are aspiring to do better, to leverage our data for tactical advantage and agility. So if we take that pyramid that's pictured on the left and, and, and flip it upside down and instead talk a, a drilling metaphor. So at that top layer, we're talking about getting your data in usable form. So consistency at your sensors. Uh, the hardest ones of that is when humans are your sensors, right? Simple automation, enabling query. And then we, we get to the next layer, reliable data flow, infrastructure pipelines. Um, and, and once we get through that kind of basic functioning enterprise infrastructure, you're now allowing experimentation with simple methods like anomaly detection, metrics, analytics, so on and so forth. Then simple machine learning and finally deep learning in AI at, at, at the base of the pyramid. So if, if in this metaphor, we, we think of depth as our organization's data literacy, not completely there yet, but I, I argue that you have to kind of drill through these other layers to get towards deep learning and AI. Uh, there's a bit of uncertainty there, because I'd say we're the folks I support right now, I'd say we're at kind of the, the two gray stripes uh, where we're consistently using analytics, um, simple machine learning episodically to, to support real analyst workflows. You know, it's, it's kind of almost too simple to say, but if, if you want to start drilling, it starts with rotation, right? So we, we define a rotation as any analytic pipeline development cycle where basically uh, your technologist or your data scientist exposes an analytic, your analyst or end user consumes it and provides feedback. That is where this growth process as an organization starts. Uh, we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more later in the talk, but that's where our, our data scientists start learning what the operational needs are. Our operational experts start earning, learning what the data scientist's capability is, so on and so forth. So a nice feedback loop to this is that with every rotation, you increase torque. So if we think, you know, the, the metaphor here, torque is the amount of force we can put on that drill bit to keep it turning. And the analogy we, we use that for is our organization's ability to employ new methods and technologies for mission impact. So I think there's really three key components to um, torque. That's a combination of operational understanding. So in, in the use case I've supported, that's intelligence professionals then methodological breadth. So that's really the data scientist's specialty. We're, you know, a, a trade secret. We're horrible code writers, 
that you know we can write code to solve a problem and, and we kind of spike the football when we get to an answer. Uh, and that's when your, your DevSecOps or your software developer steps in. They're the ones that professionally write code for scalability, reusability, and, and low human intervention once you put it into production. So, so those three skill sets, being able to understand one another's expertise and work together, that, that's really how we define torque. So that, again, the nice thing about this is it, if you're enforcing high standards, then with every rotation, you're increasing torque because solving, solving our own problems, problems that matter is kind of how we've grown uh, our professional development and our organizational um, data literacy over the past few years. Truth in lending, our, our answer is no, uh, but, but that's really, we can do that once, but that's not scalable. You're, you're not gonna automate. So then you, the next force we'll talk about is friction. So that's really like any wasted energy to get a rotation, right? So to walk through an analytic pipeline, clean the data, analyze it, surface a pattern, get that in front of an analyst, get the analyst's feedback. Wasted energy, think, um, I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I had someone say, hey, can you go data science our shared drive? And it's like this big, ugly pile of PowerPoints, Word documents, and, and OneNotes that work out. So, so that's an example of friction. Access to tools and technologies. So um, if you have to spend 45 minutes setting up uh, a Python environment every time a new person rotates into your organization and, and helping them work through the, you know, the idiosyncrasies of using Python or R on JWix, like that's friction, that's wasted energy. And then finally, one will draw out there the fourth bullet under key components, barriers to knowledge sharing. So that's something I think we're um, in the Department of Defense anyways, kind of under invested in. Um, the ability to kind of write up sound work and have it easily searchable and usable by others is something that we're um, interested in and, and kind of iterating at right now. So the takeaway at the bottom is that this, these friction costs, I think, are, are much higher than most people realize because it's, it's really uh, leveling out your learning curve, which you don't want to do, right? So with every investment we make that makes it easier for our Intel professionals, developers, and data scientists to iterate with one another, that is that's growing our organization's understanding, our ability to generate torque and getting us down towards deep learning and AI in that, in that pyramid. So just to dig a little bit deeper onto the, the infrastructure side of things. So um, this diagram here is, is partially stolen from a colleague in the, the AI task force, um, Lieutenant Colonel Isaac Faber they're working on a project to build a data science environment uh, right now. And, and we've kind of worked on similar infrastructure. So one of the things we've started to do within our command is try to get leaders to think about any analytic 
in the form of a pipeline. So when at Carnegie Mellon, when they teach a data pipelines course, they basically teach phases of the pipeline. So we've, we've kind of robbed from that doctrine and then rubbed some camo stick on it and, and uh, used some parlance that intelligence professions, professionals are a bit more familiar with, just the PED doctrine, right? So the columns in this diagram represent the phases. So first phase, collection, where the, the goal at the bottom there is to have your data accessible. Next phase, processing. So at this phase, we want the data both understood and usable at the end of that phase. Then exploitation. So this the goal here is to now be able to draw insights out of that data. And then finally, disseminate and deploy. So a, a deliberate phased uh, effort to say, how do you take that insight and put it into the hands of someone that can actually go do something with it that gives you tactical advantage. A couple things I'll highlight from this diagram. One, the phases from each node of infrastructure that's represented in, in the, uh, the circles here, that's really where you first look for friction. So uh, a known fact in the data science community is 80% of data science projects are in the processing and data cleaning phases of that analytic pipeline why not solve that at the enterprise level and, and free up all that innovation cost uh, for the rest of the enterprise. So that's what our analytic data store uh, infrastructure is, is designed to do. And then given that data lake of usable clean data, have a secure containerized set of open source tools that's uh, relatively permissive for use uh, and controlled, but again, server side. So the entire enterprise is just using a, a web link uh, to get to and use that tool. So we call that our data science environment. And that uh, environment also has uh, depicted in the, in the dash circle in the up, upper right-hand side, kind of a, a minimum viable product means to deliver insight to an end user. So we'll use Jupyter Notebooks um, as a means to, to put a capability in front of a user, sometimes shiny apps, sometimes just um, HTML pages. So knitted HTML pages that allow some interactive visualization and such. On the bottom right, those are what we call our foundational applications. So the team that I work on also has a sister element that, that focuses on production apps. So that's a much broader user base much more scalability, uh, I'd say much better usability, but the cost of that is, is how quickly they can iterate. So um, kind of what we've evolved to is we use our teams that are closest to the deployed analyst to iterate on a minimum viable product that might be costly to sustain, brittle, and a little bit harder to use but we get that analyst workflow much more well-defined and understood. And the analyst is understanding how to leverage analytics and to, to maybe rethink the way they do their analysis. And then once we get that minimum viable product um, locked down, expose that to our foundational applications team to then uh, make it more broadly usable. 
And then the last piece uh, in gold, uh, for us, this is a human machine teaming problem. Uh, that there are not supervised learning problems dangling from the trees in, in uh, not around special operations joint task forces anyways, at least, at least the trees I've looked at. Um, so really what we're trying to move towards is how do you operationalize our high-end analyst knowledge so it surfaces patterns and items of interest out of our data without, without um, as high a kind of search query and filter cost that the analyst currently currently incurs. So I think that that knowledge that we're learning to capture with some of our applications now um, that our data scientists can get via via um, programming interfaces is proven like really, really valuable um, for new analytics. So then this will be the last uh, of the death by PowerPoint. But we kind of think of these aim points uh, within my organization. So one of the benefits that we've had at special ops task forces is, you know, they, they are almost like maniacally addicted to mission. And the data scientists we hire are, are kind of like addicted to problem solving. So it's, it's a pretty convenient marriage, right? But you've got to be uh, both responsive and relevant, or you kind of lose your place under the poncho. You know, like the, the analysts will, will listen to you for a little bit. They'll tell you what they need. And if, if their kind of uh, return on investment isn't met, uh, you kind of lose your access to them. So we focus on being uh, responsive and then also producing relevant insight. So we're not gonna work on something that's a science project we're focused on delivering mission value. And that kind of keeps us attached to the problems that matter, which is kind of our lifeblood that leads to the next two bullets. Um, by solving problems that matter, we're growing our ability to apply more rigor. Um, and then the, the last piece, reusability. Um, again, a trade secret. Most of our data scientists, when they arrive, uh, to include myself, we're great at running a script that solves the specific problem that we were uh, looking to solve, but you almost had to rewrite the entire thing uh, for every problem. Over time, we've gotten much better at making our shared code base more broadly reusable and the tools we build more usable by other teams. So that in turn makes us more responsive um, and, and all these things kind of feed off each other. So that's kind of the 50,000 foot walkthrough, uh, at least how we look at analytics uh, at the tactical level. And I will uh, stop sharing and hand it back to Jay. Awesome. Uh, Colonel Benigni, first off, thanks for sharing those insights. As you transition from a more conceptual conversation to perhaps more tangible examples, could you give us some opportunities where you have deployed these technologies with those task forces, especially on incorporating those new methods into existing problem sets, challenges, and workflows. To use your parlance, how did you help generate rotation? Yeah, sure. So early on, one of my first deployments, we, uh, we did a trip with, with Chris Lynch 
from Defense Digital Services. So for those of you that, that haven't heard um, of Chris, he was like, he worked at the White House. Um, it was like the stereotypical techie. He, he showed up and like, oh, he's an SES, showed up in a hoodie and, and skinny jeans. And, um, and we went on a trip with him and he, you know, he started out, he said, I don't want to see PowerPoints. And I thought that was like part of the techie shtick, you know, like, yeah, I get it. You don't like slides, but he, I mean, he really spent the majority of his time sitting next to users on the floor to truly understand what they were doing. He didn't want to hear what leaders thought they were doing. He wanted to sit there and, and observe um, their problems. And that really, uh, struck me. So, so we kind of started with this idea that data science is a team sport. And, and what, like I quickly gained an appreciation for was how complex intelligence analysis is, right? Like when I um, sit in certain sections of the jock floor and watch a senior Intel analyst, uh, you know, stress test his team, my takeaway is if I, if I wanted to be good at this, I had to start like three years ago, right? Um, so we had one, uh, an Army Orsa come out. His name was ne uh, Major Neil Kester. Neil was about halfway through with his distance learning masters at Johns Hopkins. And uh, he came out and we put him on uh, a team that helps uh, work with captured enemy material from the battlefield. So, um, and we, 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 we used the Chris Lynch model, right? We put them right next to the analyst. We, E6, uh, Rose, who is the SIA, we said, Rose, uh, in week one, Neil is one of your PFCs. Just put him to work so he truly understands the problem. And I, th I think by the end of, uh, by the end of that week, Neil was saving that team upwards of like 11 man hours per week, um, just scripting the, you know, the, the, the poor analysts, 1300 cut and pastes to transform a spreadsheet and put it into Palantir workflow. So that kind of shaped Neil's project for the rest of that deployment. And by the time he left, he had uh, a lightweight application that was um, now the path of least resistance to process this specific type of data. And since it was the path of least resistance, we were able to write that data out to a shared database. And over time, it became much easier for that analytic team so that the, the team of Intel analysts to then ask their data team more complex questions that the UI of Palantir wasn't necessarily designed to, to answer. So we really started to, just through that iterative process, start to see the entire organization, basically going back to the kind of combined arms metaphor, learn how to better employ their nerds, for, for, you know, for lack of a better term. The next question I'd ask, uh, Colonel Benning, is you talk about torque being analogous to training outcomes. Would you also speak to using today's mission problems to build those competencies? What do you think these competencies are? And do you see a tension between focusing on near-term mission outcomes and long-term digital transformation? 
So uh, one of the things we say is, is mastery requires repetition and progression. So, you know, we look for opportunities to use today's problems to grow our technical depth. I, I remember as a, a young armor officer, uh, now General Abrams was my battalion commander. And whenever our unit went to the field, the, the talk went with it. And, and that talk jumped like every two or three days, whether they needed to or not. And it was, it was just an example of him as a great trainer using every chance he got to get repetitions that were valuable to the team. So, so we try and do that with our, um, our, our current pain points and, and, and mission focused problems. I think there's, we, we often hear this kind of almost a, an unstated procurement mindset around data science um, where there's this, this unstated theory that like, if we buy the right tool or get the right individual, poof, we'll have data science. Uh, it, and I think that's patently false um, that it's about incorporating this new type of expertise and manning training and equipping your organization to, to use it effectively so you can dynamically leverage data. So, so we say we use farsighted focus on today's problem problems. Um, back to that Traven uh, story was the name of the application that that Orsa built. You know, he, he wrote this application in R using Shiny. Um, we thought it was the greatest thing ever. And, and 45 days after he redeployed, it was, it was broken to a point where none of us understood how to fix it. And we were off to, you know, the, the reusability um, item from the, the torque chart uh, was a hard lesson learned, right? At, at this point, our organization has taken those lessons learned and, and put that into enterprise scale data pipelines, but we really weren't ready to make those decisions, have those discussions and prioritize that work at the time when Neil was creating that application, right? We've, we've matured to the point where that's now kind of the ridgeline that we're, we're taking. So then the last piece that I'll, I'll, I'll highlight is this, this focus on solving current problems has some pretty nice closed feedback loops. So, so you put talent next to the problem and, and you generate some tempo, right? You generate some rotation. The type of people we wanna bring into our organizations to help us do this are, are literally problem junkies. They, they, they wanna solve problems that matter. So that tempo attracts talent. Like we've been able to recruit some absolutely incredible technical talent because they're because the problem solving environment's becoming more attractive. And that, I'd say following off on that question, uh, Colonel Brittany, can you give, provide some examples of where resourcing help reduce friction? You talk talent, but love to hear you expand on that more. Sure. That I, I guess that's the other side of the talent piece, right? Is is for anyone out there that's tried to. Uh, develop or practice data science on secret or top secret networks. Uh, it's a, uh, there's some friction, right? 
so uh, you know i'd say our infrastructure uh, over time has matured quite a bit and 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 hats off to the intelligence community if you get a chance to leverage some of their lessons learned they've been at this for a while um, they've taken the mindset of of solving their own problems and a lot of the work we've been able to do in the intelligence realm is because of that foundation laid by the intelligence community that's that's accessible on these high side networks but I, so i'd say in terms of reducing friction so letting our technologists deliver more impact which makes it more attractive but also letting our customers or our operational intel professionals receive more product give more feedback and and really they're the ones that are are driving the innovation. They're the ones employing uh, this asset. So we've really got two goals. Um, the first is to maximize the time our analysts spend assigning meaning to important patterns. And then the second, minimize the time or cost it takes to surface an analytic, right? As we break that down, uh, just the return, the return we get uh, kind of per calorie of energy just gets much higher, right? So examples of friction. Uh, we, we did the, can you data science my share drive, right? Like data practices at the deployed edge. We spend a lot of time trying to uh, unmess poor, poor data hygiene at the point of capture. Fixing data pipelines, that, that, that's another one. Um, if we had a nickel for every every weekend coming in because someone changed a, a share folder, you know, um, the, the, there's there's no val real learning value in that when you do it repeatedly. Um, burning disks to transfer things from one network to another, not scalable, or you know, so those are just a few examples. And then and then finally, I'll, I'll add one last goal: uh, buying down the cost of sharing workflows laterally. So we talked about kind of knowledge sharing earlier. Being able to recreate the environment that the data science community enjoys on the internet where people broadly share tutorials, uh, that's something we can leverage within the Department of Defense and the IC because you know most of our folks when they do great work uh, they're, they're not incentivized to make it proprietary and turn it for profit. They, uh, they just want other people to use it and, and deliver value. So uh, our infrastructure is also focused on, uh, on that as well. And that's a following off that question. You're talking about some of the skills at potentially the, the data science operator level. Can you share some of the competencies you think leaders need to understand in this environment? That's that's the million dollar question in our command right now. Uh, that our our commanding general is is asking myself and and a few colleagues on our team to really start helping them understand what what is data literacy and and how do we get our kind of O5 and above leaders to understand those core concepts that they need. So. So this is, we're into the uncertain math theory portion, right? Uh, don't, don't take as gospel. Uh, but, but one, I'd say the, the cost of manually curated pipelines is 
is extremely high. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick story. At, at one deployed task force, um, there's a, an evolving kind of indirect threat that had um, this Sergeant Major's soldiers, you know, in, in body armor in the chow hall, right? And he came into our data, one of our deployed data teams and said, hey, if someone called me tomorrow and said, which widget do you want 10 more of? I could not answer that question because every time I, I report on this specific type of threat, it's via email and spreadsheets. So, so for us, I mean, that was a watershed moment, right? When your operations sergeant major is coming to the realization that, that using email and Excel for information management is carrying too high of a tactical cost. Like to me, that was a big deal. That, that was a, an indicator that um, organizationally we were starting to, to transform. That understanding is not broad enough yet. There's still a lot of friction that we fight that is, that is manually induced. And I don't think leaders understand how much benefit there is to removing human error as far up the data pipeline as possible. Uh, the, the next piece is the basic strengths and limitations of machine learning and AI, right? So, hey, can you AI my share drive? No, I can't. Like that is not currently doable, right? Um, a lot of times NLP workflows are another great example. Folks always say, I want you to, you know, detect which one of these things I should read. And then you, you'll put a hefty amount of man hours into it, show it to the customer and they'll go, meh, because it's, it's still too noisy, you know? Um, but understand the difference between a supervised and unsupervised learning problem and the kind of condition your data needs to be in to, to do that successfully. And I think once they understand that, number three is that the power of aggregate data. Certain data types are extremely powerful when you can aggregate them. Uh, and then lastly, the understanding of, you know, agile, CI, CD, DevSecOps, those are very real, important terms that I think need to be broadly understood by our operational leaders, but you know, are, are probably buzzwords in, in, in most cases. So th those, those four things. And I think that question actually lends itself to a good next question, which is from like the individual military leader, emerging soldier and, and, and military personnel side, how can they best prepare to become digitally enabled warriors? Remember, uh, this is from the perspective of the technologist, right? So, I mean, I, I, was, I was allergic to school mo most of my life, but then something happened and I changed. So I'd say to, to start um, laying a foundation in our education and onboarding pipelines. So, you know, engineering has long been an emphasis in our commissioning programs. Um, at, at this point, I'm biased, but I'd argue that software and data engineering and analytics are probably just as relevant as the anatomy of a suspension bridge to uh, my wartime efforts. Um, but also require, you know, similar 
technical problem solving constructs. So I, I think baking data competency into our commissioning programs is would probably be a shrewd investment. And the next piece, I, I think again, taking a, a far-sighted look at our garrison information problems. You know, back in my day, which is you know like circa 2005, the last time I was in a dang battalion orderly room, but uh, I used the chemo example, right? Like everybody felt bad for the chemo. He he spent like three weeks worth of manning hours per week managing deployment statistics in this disgusting Excel spreadsheet that was like inaccurate and he'd think he was done and some company commander at 1600 on Friday emails him one last copy, you know. I'm sure there, if, if that's not still the use case du jour, there's plenty of problems out there that we can use to um, start to get more competent use where we uh, decouple our, our data layer from our presentation layer, where we start to uh, have a healthy disgust with manual repetitive information management. Two, two last pieces. Um, right now for me, a, a huge portion, so how many of you want caveat? So there's this thing in data science called the data science imposter syndrome. It's like a real thing, you can Google it. Uh, so data science is this field that is, you know, impossibly broad. And, and most of us that, that wear the title of data scientists have, you know, true depth and expertise in like a, a 200 meter swath of this three mile wide field. So the odds are when you're having a conversation with another data scientist, when they're talking, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know anything about what this guy's talking. Like I'm, I'm just hanging on with white knuckles, right? Um, and within the field, that's this kind of accepted thing. And you just kind of grow to understand that, okay, he feels the same way as me when I'm talking. And, and the same holds true when you start to blend development teams with your data science teams, because whenever the other side's talking, the other side's like, oh my gosh. So one of the ways I lead in this space, and then also it's my like, continued education, is I, I prioritize point-to-point -point meetings. So it is rare that with a meeting with more than five people in the room, you're gonna talk about a technical solution at the level of detail that's needed to be useful. So I set aside one day a week where I just fill point to point meetings with my technologists. And it's, it's part me understanding where the friction points are that, that help frame advocacy of whether, whether it's infrastructure or resources. Uh, but in the process, I, I get to learn uh, other, other elements of technology that are important in, in getting analytics out into production. Um, so it's, it's kind of my, my way of, of uh, putting my continued education on the, on the backs of my subordinates. <laughs> so then finally writing, that is my, my, my favorite teacher at, at Carnegie Mellon uh, said writing is nature's way of telling you how fuzzy your thinking is. So um, the exercise of, of writing up workflows 
such that other people can understand them is, is, is a deliberate way we upskill our technologists within my organization. I think the same could hold true for operational leaders in trying to go through the exercise of writing up what they are asking for to a level where another human being can understand it, right? Because until you can do that, I'd argue, you don't understand the problem you're asking your technologist to solve. And, and just the exercise of doing that, at least in some cases, would, would help you get to the point where, you're, where your requests from your technologists are more well-framed to get, to get better results. Those are super helpful, Colonel Benigni. And I think they go to the next question, which is over the last two years, we've seen a ton of growth within the defense ecosystem when it comes to AI and tech. You've got the Jake, you've got the Army Software Factory. How do you see the forces digital literacy changing over the next five years? I'm optimistic. You know, um, th there's a number of places out there now that are swinging at pitches. So they're getting better, right? So I remember year one. Um, so I was I was pretty good when I showed up at recognizing a data problem. I had I I didn't even know what I didn't know about being able to put a solution into production. So there there was one specific problem that I had kind of framed out, and was at a a, a mature IC partner. And they were kind of like, hey, we, we solved almost the same problem. And I remember their, their data scientist said, it's, we've containerized it. How do you want it? And, and I was like, I'm so embarrassed to say, I don't even know how to answer your, you know, your question. Um, that's a few years ago. At this point, I would say not just everybody within our analytics platform, but a large number of people in our command, when you say containerized software, know what that means. And, and some folks understand the infrastructure used to kind of orchestrate those containers or, or get them out so they're usable. Um, so I, I think what you're seeing in the Department of Defense now um, in terms of you'll see a fundamental change in our in the market, so to speak, uh, in terms of like COTS, GOTS, solutions, machine learning, and AI, that we're becoming more technically adept in, in a few ways. So, so the first one, our, our networks, right? Our, as we're moving to the cloud, you know, right now, uh, if I put on my uh, pretend I was an industry hat, which is, you know, introduce a, a fair amount of uncertainty there. But I mean, for them to get to market, essentially there's a huge upfront cost just to get your software deployed on some, on whatever enclave of this patchwork of network enclaves. Um, and, and the standards are different on every one, right? So if you, if you get access to, if you get ATO to deploy on JWEX, you don't necessarily have authority to deploy on another command's enclave. Um, so the economics of that are, are challenging. When you look at uh, the work that Jake's doing with the Joint Common Framework, 
Um, I, I think that's going to be super beneficial for to have one deployment pathway that, that's fairly uniform. Um, specifically, if you look at Air Force's platform one, um, our group has uh, another platform called Jade, so our joint application development environment. Um, each of those are basically using the same tools, right? It's a, it's a Kubernetes rancher uh, orchestration system. We're using uh, GitLab for automated software deployment with security checks. And so, so that Jade environment uh, has enabled my data science teams to do like absolutely incredible things uh, on our unclassed dev environment that are then fairly easy to push up to the high side. So as that type of build on low side, fewer barriers to deploy on high side fundamentally changes, like that it's gonna be much easier for industry to add value, I think. The next piece, um, I, I think we're becoming smarter consumers. Um, so as an example, within our platform, decoupling our data and presentation layers, right? So you, we're gonna walk away if someone is pitching us something where they own the full data pipeline and, and we can't access the backend data with a useful API, not just an API, a useful API. Um, we routinely contract, so we own the code that's generated, right? So if it's a contract partner building the tool, they don't, they don't walk away with the, with the code and leave us the binaries. And finally, I think we're also getting to the point where we, we know what we're asking for. So I, I think in the past, we've tried to outsource a problem we haven't taken the time to figure out as a software problem, right? Like, I don't know how to do this. Go make a, go make a computer program that figures it out for me. And that just doesn't work, right? Software, software generally automates well-defined requirements or scales up well-defined requirements. So I think we're getting to a point where we're really uh, asking for much more specific things from software developers. And next question, uh, Colonel Brindley, is actually coming from a couple of people in the chat. Uh, and it focuses on how do you get started with education? And so if you were to give them three things they can do to start their journey into becoming data-enabled warriors, what would that look like? And what resources do you think they should spend time on? Yeah, so I keep getting this. Jay keeps giving me this question uh, in, in my day job. I would say like, start by trying to solve a, a real problem that is fairly simple. So like the chemo problem, right? Like, could you use that problem to figure out how do I set up a database that makes it easier for me to catch five copies of the same report and quickly answer questions, right? And so you start with a tutorial, maybe take a data quest course on, you know, basic database administration and, and do your best to solve that, 
that specific problem and, and kind of reach out to, to experts as you need help. I, I think walking in from that perspective gives you the scaffolding, or at least from, for, for me, that is what gave me the scaffolding to capitalize on the coursework I was then exposed to in, in my education background. At this point, after the Army given me like five years of formal education, I think I have like a horrible perspective as what the, what the start point of that looks like. Um, but I, I do think that we need to have a system that I, I know there is a ton of latent talent and aptitude hidden in our formations. And we need to figure out a way for them to self-discover like in the name of mission. And, and once they show that, that aptitude and that drive to kind of fight through learning a new thing to solve a problem at hand, then we throw training money behind them because we don't need a billion data scientists and developers, right? We need their code and their techniques should scale. So um, I think we should have some kind of self-directed platforms so that they can, they can self-identify. The next question from the group is, how should leaders think about asking questions of data science experts? What are the, the best questions to put them against? And how do you start understanding how to employ that asset it, when they show up in your formations or as they start to emerge? Yeah, we actually uh, kind of wrote a, wrote a little paper on this that I, I can kind of give back to Jay. Um, so we call them, now I'm, remember I'm an operational planner, uh, you know, back in the days of my youth. So I look at it as it's the operator or the intelligence professional, their job to say, here's the data problem I think I have. And, and here's what I mean by that. Like there's some desired, so some definition of data science is the ability to extract information from data. So we'll often see an analyst says, hey, I'm looking at this pile of data. I know there's a certain signature inside there because when I surf long enough, I find you know, clues of evidence there. And when they can define, I'm trying to find a pattern that looks like this from this data source, that's, that's kind of your part of the contract. Then your data scientist can say, okay, for the kind of thing you're trying to pull out of there. So you're trying to pull out, you know, all Twitter users that are interested in ISIS. Um, here's the techniques we'd use. Here's the kind of results you can expect. It, is that realistic expectation? Does that answer your need? And if the answer is yes, and it's worth the time investment, then give a shot at solving that problem, you know, define some near-term goals and, and start iterating. And, and through that iteration, what we've found is, is that is how our, 
Intel professionals have learned to ask better questions that you know, our data scientists would, would really never learn to ask, right? Because they kind of don't understand, we don't understand exactly what the analyst is chasing. The next question I'd ask from the chat again is for units that don't have a ton of resources, but want to move towards this, A, what do you see as the most cost-effective ways to reduce friction? And B, what do you see as the most approachable first step on this journey that even without external enablers like a PhD data scientist, they can pursue? I think there's a few, um, I'm gonna answer a slightly different question first. And then if, if I fail to get back onto the X, make me walk back on there. There's a few things that, that are just our blanket rules in this space. We all underestimate the complexity of these tasks at the outset. I mean, like I, I still do. And you really have to make an effort to bite off things that are, are tractable problems, right? That are maybe just outside your reach, but, but, but solvable. So to like start solving problems is pretty cheap. A little open source software, a pile of data and, you know, be, be better next week than you are today. Um, where I think we routinely go wrong is to, to start at, at too high of an aim point. So what do I mean by that? Uh, I see us oftentimes in the Department of Defense trying to scale, like at, be a startup at scale, right? So like we're gonna do a software, we're gonna launch a software effort and we're gonna be an enterprise solution that, that pleases everyone and scales to whatever number of users, right? Even though we've never done this before. Like that's infinitely harder than starting with a specific tool that solves a specific problem for a specific user. Let's say like that's where you start. I'd say that actually lends itself well to another question, which is as we think about starting standardizing data at the enterprise level, one of the questions that came up was, how do you think a lot of the data strategies and policies that have been written so far in the national security community are doing? And do you think that they're really enforceable or what elements do you think we need to emphasize as units from the DOD on down start to generate their own data strategies and data policies? Uh, all right. So I'm, I'm going to be painfully honest. Now, remember, I've been a tactical data scientist, right? So I've, I've, I've lived poor work-life balance for three and a half years to, to try and help us kind of learn at the micro level. So I've read a few data strategies, but not all of them. Um, of the early ones that I read, uh, I would leave them saying, how has this changed my life? There wasn't much tractable kind of meat, do this, don't do this, get this done by in them. And, and I, I guess I understand that a strategic document isn't, isn't an action plan, but we're kind of new to this data fundamentals business. And I, and I think we really have to start getting at 
what are the specific standards? Okay, so if you want a data strategy, what data does that apply to? Because you're not going to apply, it doesn't apply to, to your share drive, Jay, right? Like, so does this apply to our contracting data within the J8? Okay, then what are the standards with that? How are we going to track contracts? Is Excel acceptable? If it is, there's, there's a cost in terms of how dynamic you can be and how you analyze and how you uh, surface insights from it. So, you know, we're starting to think about updating our data strategy and walking through for each data type, who's in charge of governance, right? To me, that's a staff code directorate level function on behalf of the commander. Then who's in charge of stewardship, right? So you, your IT professionals are in charge of automating compliance, transport, warehousing and life cycling of that data. But it's your governance that's laying out the rules for them to be able to do it. And then lastly, consumption. There has to be a deliberate effort to understand how that data is supposed to be consumed. And, and all three of those functions have to be transparent with one another and, and, and team up to, to execute that strategy properly. Um, that, that's not unique to DOD. When you, when you start reading kind of enterprise data management literature, like different flavors of those three components are, are always part of the solution. The next question kind of builds a little, little bit of a strategic flair, but feel free to pivot this to the tactical level of it's your preference. What applications of AI are you most excited about? And where do you think that the Joint Chiefs can best secure a competitive advantage for the national security ecosystem applying these technologies? Uh, I'm just going to answer the first part, right? <laughs> um, I, I'm most excited about this idea of human machine teaming, and specifically within the intelligence community. Like, we've got a pretty strong Intel machine. Uh, we can within the fighting force as well, we can collect data well, we're getting better at um, moving data. We're decent at searching data, but at this point, oftentimes when you hit a search result, we kind of give our analyst a big data problem. Where I think we're behind is being able to use what that analyst kind of puts aside, essentially, whenever an analyst saves something, they're tagging it as relevant. And it's, it's very similar to the problem that like Facebook and Pinterest face. So basically Facebook and Pinterest constantly record what you're doing in their platform and then take all your markers from your web traffic when you arrive and they say, what is interesting to this person so I can keep them in the platform? That's a, a very close problem to, given what this intelligence analyst has tagged and included in this project, in the vast resources of data out there, 
what other objects should be would likely be of interest to them. So it's it's almost this like self-directing recommendation engine that allows the analyst to um, take a much better advantage of that ecosystem out there. But I think we're we're not quite there yet in terms of instrumenting our applications to, to record those kind of latent signals from our end user. A, a question from another uh, one of the, the guests was, when you think about the average maneuver formation, where do you see the most impactful introduction of AI and ML in, in the near term or kind of currently how we understand those maneuver formations? And then what can an infantry company commander do today to help get his formation one step closer to that vision? Uh, so I, this is why I actually think quite a bit uh, about, you know, I think back to my days as an armor officer and you'd look at a given piece of terrain and there's probably like 15 or 20 permutations in a heavy fight of how you'd fight that piece of terrain or how you'd defend it. And then the, the process of battle tracking is like this inherently Bayesian uh, process, right? Where your elements are returning information that lead to commanders making a decision to kind of change the outcome on the battlefield over time. I would think that we would be able to get to a point where we can kind of, in the staff planning process, define that Bayesian model that, that kind of helps our reporting um, queue up decisions for our commander in a, in a more efficient and an informed way. But I, I take that with a huge grain of salt because it's, uh, it's a little far out there. What do you think defense leaders should spend more time thinking about? Or what question do you think most defense leaders should be asking themselves that they might not be yet in this space? I think they should be thinking about in, instead of AI and ML, time to market for a new idea or analytic workflow, right? So if, I would love for them to measure, here's a new tool. How long does it take you to get into production across the force? Because I think the, the algorithms and techniques we're talking about right now on the tempo we're at right now, by the time we could get them into production on the battlefield, they'll be out of date. The, the real problem at hand is how do, you, how do you deploy software or algorithms in days, if not hours? That's like the real problem at hand. And when we solve that problem, then we're actually untrapping a lot of that learning and that rotation and torque and all those things we were talking about earlier. Like that, that's the bottleneck right now. The other one that I, I don't have an answer to, but I, I, I appreciate that modernization is different than force comms mission. And, and I buy that with, particularly with material solutions, our, our process to do that really requires that distinction. Solving 
problems that are abstract, I don't think gets us better at solving problems. So developing ML and AI solutions, I, I question whether that, that modernization paradigm that we don't have to may, maybe, maybe it's not the algorithm that's the point, it's the ability to solve a problem that's the point. And doing that might be more effective, more tightly coupled to forcecom type problems or logistics type problems or maintenance type problems, which, I mean, the Jake is doing that, right? Like, um, and the Army AI Task Force, they're, they're out there trying to solve real problems for real units. So I think folks recognize that, that distinction, but I think as we mature, uh, that, that divide between modernization and, and current ops will hopefully reduce. What have you loved most about your journey as a data scientist in the national security community? I guess I'd say it, it's, I've felt overwhelmed, healthily overwhelmed for like seven years now, right? And that's like the closest to healthy I, I get. So I'm always figuring out that there's a whole swath of things I need to understand to feel like I'm competent at my job. And when I'm not in a job that makes me feel that way, it's boredom is way worse. So uh, between education opportunities and then the past four years in, in SOCOM, I, I literally have never been bored. So it's been great. What have we not asked you tonight that we should have? Or what parting thoughts do you have for everybody listening? Uh, so I'll give you just a couple of parting thoughts. So first is that I think we have to get out of the abstract in this space, right? Like a lot of, a lot of these efforts stay in this kind of perpetual state of ideation because it's, I think it's human nature, right? Because we don't know what, exactly what we're trying to do. So if you're always talking about something off in the future, uh, we got to get to the point where you're like, okay, 80% of what you're briefing me today needs to be crap you've done. And we'll leave you 20% of the time to tell you stuff you're going to do. The next piece is we have to attack mundane and repetitive processes. Like I, I truly think what we've been throwing manpower at in terms of information practices, that's like the building blocks of defeat for tomorrow's battlefield. That as the amount of data goes up, if we don't gain the competency to handle data at that scale, if we keep doing cut, hey, S3 alpha, cut and paste 3000 times before you go home, like that, that's not a recipe for success. And then lastly, like, it is paralyzing when we look at, I mean, Lord knows how good China is at this stuff, right? I mean, if we read the news articles, they're like 10 feet tall, but maybe their share drive looks just as bad as ours, I don't know. But when we look at where we think we should be, it, it's paralyzing, right? But if instead you look at how can I be more data competent or manage information better, like at the end of the month, it's, it's pretty friggin' easy, you know? And I think the more you do that, the more competent you get. And over time, uh, 
we get where we need to go faster. So I, I guess I'll close with that. Thanks for taking the time to listen. We love ideas and feedback, so feel free to send your thoughts to hello at deaf.org. For more great content and to stay in the loop about community events and activities, follow us on social media and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Everyone plays a part in building the innovative national security culture we want to see. To find where you fit, just go to deaf.org slash join. That's def.org slash join.